Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is someone I've known, I think, Sue, right since we started in London in 2013, uh, Sue Unerman, who is the Chief Transformation Officer at Mediacom and is about to publish your third book. Uh, and Sue, I I'd like to go back and start um, with one of your early gigs and your tenure at a legendary firm that seems to have created an incredibly strong alumni group. And that's DMB&B. You know, you started there as a media planner and buyer, I guess about the same time when I started working. I started, my first job was 1986. And I think your timing was about the same. So what was it about that culture? You know, you were, uh, as my grandfather would say, you were a young greenhorn. I'm sure absorbing and getting a chance to work for some, you know, great minds. What was it about that culture that created such an incredible culture and an alumni of people who have gone on to incredible accomplishment? It's a really interesting question because I think I've got quite a UK angle on it because obviously DMBNB, big global company, very strong American company, big global clients. But in the UK, something strange went on, which was Benton and Bowles media department. When DMB when Macy's acquired the company, it became DMB in 1986. Most of the rest of the media department, apart from me and two others, walked out and set up one of the first media independents in the UK called Ray Morgan and Partners. That then became um, Zenith which obviously is still, is still uh, a big company. Um, and I was one of the few people actually, as a TV buyer, who stayed at DMBNB. And I moved at that point from TV buying into planning. And that for me was what changed everything. Because up until that point, I've been doing TV buying, which was essentially trading. And when I moved into planning, it became about people and it became about audiences. And DMBNB had a strong heritage of being curious about customers and customer first, actually. And so that, for me, was that turning point. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I was only there for maybe a couple of years, 86, 87, uh, 88, maybe three years. Um, and then I moved to another full service agency briefly, but after that, in 1990, I moved to a little buying shop called The Media Business, and I've been there ever since. So I think there was something about being trained very early on to ask questions and to be challenging. But where I am now, where I am by one of the people that's been there longest, but there are an enormous amount of people that have been there 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, as the company has grown from what was a little, obviously analog in 1990, 
buying shop to Mediacom, which is a digital communications planning and you know cr creative um, agency in the sense of creative solutions for clients, and is world leading in the in, you know in in some respects, but certainly market leading by a long way in the UK, and. The reason why so many of us have stayed there is because the sense of belonging has been really strong. And I think that, but that sense of challenging everything, I think that was strong in the 80s. And I wonder sometimes if um, there is enough of that about when you start out in business these days or whether you get told to do things and to just get on and do as you're told. And I have always told everybody that I meet never to do as they're told. I mean, always think what you think the right thing is to do and then build a case for that. I don't know what you think about that, Matt. I get the impression you've never done as you were told very often. Uh, yeah, not that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, that's why I work for myself because I think I'm, I'm basically unemployable. Um, so, Sue, so you hit on something. I remember I talked about it a lot with uh, Chris McDonald, who's now got a big global gig at McCann, we met when he was running McCann London, and we talked about his early career and how important training was and how much training was emphasized. Um, do you think today that we've gotten away from that a little bit and we send our people out, you know, sink or swim, often without a whole lot of direction? That's not my experience. My experience is there's more training. So his experiences may have been very different. I, I experienced coaching at the beginning of my career so I was given to somebody with a bit more experience than me to look after me and um, I can almost guarantee that he had no training in training people he was just given me as an assistant and um, uh, you know we kind of worked our way through he wasn't much older than me he corrected my maths maths was quite important at that stage um, whereas now, and I, I don't know, I don't know if it's a general experience, but certainly at Mediacom, we take training as a real strategic priority, and particularly for the pipeline. There's an awful, in fact, in fact, I'm in a conversation at the moment about whether we've got too much training going on this autumn, and we need to actually manage it a bit more. So okay. that's not been my experience. Okay. Partly because there are so many skills these days in media that you really need to learn. You know, you can't make your way through them. You know, we've, we've got a strong relationship, of course, as we would do with, with Google, with Facebook. And people need to understand those technicalities. That's not something that you can just pick up. Right. Well, I'm sure your success in Mediacom as a market leader and the investment that you make in your people and training, those two things are connected. Yeah, of course. Ha have to be. Yeah. Uh, so over the years, you've gained a, a reputation as someone who is sort of ahead of where we are right now, that consistently when people talk about you, your clients, your colleagues, you're ahead of the curve and you've become a real leader uh, as part of the broader reputation of the UK. And I'll give credit to Paul Bainsfair and the IPA in effectiveness. How did that sense of, you know, finger on the pulse and really going back to 
that old notion, which so many get away from, is the work working? You know, how did you develop that skill? How do you maintain that sharpness and vision? I never think that good enough is good enough. So but one of my colleagues, Luke, one of my much-loved colleagues, once once said this about me, we were reviewing somebody. And I said, look, you know, they're, they're okay, but they could improve in this area, in this area, in this area. And he looked at me and he said, but the thing about you, Sue, is, is that you never think that good enough is good enough, even, even when it evidently is. And I think that sense that you can always make things better, you can always improve things. That for me is the joy of this job, of this work. It's why I've never lost interest in it. And I would say that, you know, I, I, I think, you know, Steve Allen, yeah, he was my um, CEO, global CEO until very recently. So Nick Lawson is now um, his successor, but I worked with Steve for nearly, nearly 30 years. And as soon as I started to work from him, for him, I learned two things. First of all, I learned how to harness my competitive instinct. So until then, I had been very ambivalent about being competitive. And if you'd said to me, are you competitive? I would have said, no, 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 not really. I, I just like to, I like to do things well. But what Steve taught me to do was harness my competitiveness. And it turns out that I'm actually very, very competitive on behalf of the team as an overall thing. So, uh, you know, Mediacom likes to win, but we like to win as a team. And harnessing that was a big learning for me. But the other thing that I learned from him is openness to change so I think anywhere else that I'd worked and I don't know if you've ever had this experience but maybe again it's the kind of you know why you prefer working for yourself but other places that I'd worked if you came up with a new idea people would think about it and they kind of go well yeah Sue that's nice but you know what we've been selling our clients pencils until recently you know and for years and and now you've come up and you've said, look, let's let's invent the, the, the ballpoint pen or something. What are we going to do about all those pencils that we were selling them? And maybe now's not the time to innovate. And I think as soon as I started working with Steve, it became clear that if you could build an argument for innovation, then he was in and he was fully in. And I think working in that way is why we grew and why we became successful. But I also think the idea now that you wouldn't constantly be looking for the next innovation is very, very old fashioned. So I think probably with legacy revenues, some businesses swerved innovating and innovating in a painful way. And the strong are the businesses that evolve and adapt and innovate actually when they don't need to. So innovate when things are going all right. And I think that sense of excitement that comes from change and pushing things along, that's been very important to, to me. Fantastic. So we're going to get to the new book, but I want to go back first to your first book, Tell the Truth, and which I think was uh, about 2012, give or take. Yes, it was 2012. And uh, building on what you were just talking about, one of the things that you know, I think has helped enable whatever degree of success we've had is we never get married to our own ideas and we're never afraid to try something new and we'll often stop doing something that's been successful before it turns south. You know, it's like a heavyweight champion who retires 
you know, at the right time. Most hang on too long and it doesn't go well. Very few can walk away on top. And one of the things culturally that that I worry about, and I see it in a lot of young people in particular, is people have a real reticence now to admit it when they're wrong. And uh, somewhere along the line, uh, our relationship with the truth, certainly in this country, has changed. We used to have things that we all believed that this is, you know, uh, uh, this is red, this is blue, this is forward, this is backward. And all of a sudden now, uh, and this is not a phenomenon that's just restricted to the U.S., certainly other places, Brazil comes to mind right away, uh, where the truth has been put in play as almost something that now is like that little silver ball in the pinball machine. Going back to your notion that honesty is really your most powerful marketing tool, how do you view the relationship that we as a society now have with the truth? And is that something that, you know, keeps you up at night a little bit? It sure keeps me up at night. It's interesting. I mean, I, I wonder whether we would have called the book Tell the Truth now, because I think I agree with you that the meaning of the word truth has uh, stopped to is less absolute than it used to be. People have their own truths and um, they're, they're seem, it seems to be less of an objective notion. I mean, w- what we meant by it at the time of the book coming out was um, in 2012 was really when um, Amazon and social media were kicking off. And the point that we were making for brands was that they, they couldn't just spin their own version of the truth they had to take into account what customers were saying about them. Because as we pointed out, you know, people don't walk into Walmart to buy something and go up to other customers and go, by the way, what do you think of this? Whereas, of course, that's exactly what happens if you buy something on Amazon. You, you get everybody else's point of view about it. And that's what we were talking about then. As far as the issue of truth, I think, <clears throat> I think deep down, everybody still knows what truth is. I think that there is a, you, you, you know when you're being truthful, you, you, you instinctively know when people around you are being truthful. You can choose what you are going to believe or how you're going to act at that moment. But I don't think, I think it's, I think it's a very um, basic human instinct to know deep down what the right thing to do is and to know deep down when people are speaking the truth and are being authentic. And I think I am optimistic about that, despite everything that's going on. And when I speak to the under 25s, who I do think are markedly different in terms of their outlook, certainly as from I was when I was their age, I think that they are sophisticated in their use of social media so they understand when to turn it on when to turn it off and I think they are very clear about their expectations from the world and less likely to put up with stuff because the so-called grown-ups say it's got to be that way and you touched on it, but the evolution of social media over the course of the last 10, 15 years, you know, we started advertising week in 2004 
in New York. And at that time, Facebook, Facebook was on the Harvard campus, right? We were three years away from YouTube. We were about the same away from the iPhone. Uh, almost none of the subjects beyond sort of the evergreens of things like talent or storytelling, creativity, you know, almost none of the subjects that we talk about today existed. The evolution of truth and where we get our information from has changed dramatically. And depending on what you read or watch, you're going to get very different versions of what's going on right now. How do you marry that reality of the world that we live in now and how you shape advice for how your clients manage their own marketing and communication? So it will depend on client objectives, obviously, um, because there are short-term metrics and longer-term metrics, as you know. And as a media agency, it is our job to give neutral advice about what works and what doesn't work, not to be swayed by sales pitches, but to actually look at the evidence and the effectiveness evidence. And you mentioned the IPA. I've just judged um, over 60 IPA awards papers and the ones that shone through are, are brilliant. I mean, I, I do think it's the most rigorous advertising judging in, in the world. It's certainly my experience. And the evidence that the papers that have you know, won the golds and the silvers and the Grand, and the Grand Prix, it's extraordinary work. And it, there's, there's no fudging. Uh, the judges were very, very cynical. Any paper that got through, it's, it's, it's all about the evidence. So I think it's our role to build an, a case, an evidence-based argument for our clients' investments. I don't think it's about fads. I don't think it's about gambling. I think it's about evidence. But I will say this as well, which is that, you know, we are rightly as a generation being questioned about the sustainability of the future of the planet by, by younger people, rightly. And um, look what has happened to global travel as a result of these few months of, of pandemic. You know, we would have that there is there is no business leader, global business leader, who would, have, who would have said, fine, we're going to cancel all the travel, right? But businesses have continued and video calling has obviously become the norm. So the choices that we made about sustainability of the planet, they were choices. They weren't inevitable. And I think that there are choices to be made about the sustainability of quality journalism as well that the business model that we found ourselves in at the moment is not designed to sustain quality journalism. Who, who is going to pay for foreign correspondence in a world of clickbait? You know, that's, that's not going to work. So I do think that it's incumbent on business leaders in our sector to be having those conversations as well and thinking about the best way of creating a sustainable media future, just as we are thinking about the best way to create a sustainable future for the planet. Yeah, I mean, I think that system of, in effect, checks and balances protects us all. And I think losing sight of that, as is happening, you know, certainly with this president uh, that we are dealing with right now, hopefully for just a short period of time, 
um, is uh, tears at the very fabric of what makes us a society. And it's very worrisome. Okay, so we don't want to go down that Trump rabbit hole, do we? Your second book, Sue, was also consistent with what we touched on earlier, which is you being ahead of the curve, you know, consistently without your career. And gender equity is certainly having its moment, if you will. The conversation around pay equity, uh, around diversity and inclusion, which we're going to get to with belonging, um, has never been more prevalent. And almost every day you read about another major company hiring somebody very senior or creating a position around gender equity, around diversity and inclusion. But reflecting on what's happened the last four or five years since you and Catherine first published The Glass Wall, an awful lot has happened. If you were writing that book today, what would be the same and what would be different? Well, I think one of the reasons why we wrote the new book was to rewrite The Glass Wall for today. Because that... There have been lots and lots of diversity and inclusion initiatives since we wrote The Glass Wall, which was about gender diversity at senior levels. And I am uh, told that about $6 billion gets, $7 billion, six billion pounds gets spent on diversity and inclusion initiatives every year. What we found with The Glass Wall, and it came about actually, it was my global, current global CEO, uh, Nick Lawson. I don't know if you know Nick, you would, you would get on with him very well, I think. Um, but it was actually his idea to write the book because I went to him after Tell the Truth had been out for a couple of years. And I said, um, I think uh, I think I'd like to do a follow up. But, but would Mediacom kind of fund it because I wanted to make it just about our clients and their truth telling. And he he just surprised me because he said, yes, I will do that. So he said, but that's not the book you should write. You should write a book about women and work. And I originally thought this was a terrible idea because Sharon Sandberg had just published Lean In which is a great book and an epoch-changing book, but very much a book for extroverts. So I think had I been 25 and I'd read Lean In, and I'm very much an introvert by nature, um, I think I would have gone back to bed. It's just, it's all full of, you know, jumping up and standing up for yourself. And I don't think that's the only way to have a career. So I thought about it and I thought about Mediacom as it was at the time. And we were in a very successful phase. Um, our client-facing top people, there were five of us, and four out of the five of us were women, and three out of the four of us worked part-time. And my CEO at the time was Karen Blackett OBE, who is not only a woman, but she's a black woman who is also a single mother. And I think if you'd gone to most businesses and said, highly competitive sector, um, it's 24-7, you know, as you know, Matt, if something goes wrong with a spot that a client has booked in on a Saturday night to a peak show, they don't wait politely for Monday morning at nine o'clock to call you about it. You know, it's all very immediate. People are working Christmas Day, Boxing Day, Thanksgiving. Um, and if you'd said, what we'll do is we'll have four out of the five will be women and three out of the four of them will work part time. I think most businesses would have gone, what are you talking about? It's, it's, it's just a dream. But it had happened. It had happened organically. Hadn't happened because of any, you know, initiatives. It just happened because they were believed to be the best people. And it was a very successful time um, in our business. And it made me think, what Nick said made me think, and looking around and then speaking to my co-author, Catherine Jacob, 
made me think, well, why, why is it not like that everywhere? Why isn't it at least 50-50 everywhere? And so the idea of the glass wall came about, which was that there's an invisible wall that's a set of rules that aren't designed for women that women perhaps don't understand. And so the glass wall was about uncovering those walls. And what I've seen since 2016, when that book came out, is that the rules haven't really changed. There's still a set of rules that are created for a small group of workaholic patriarchal men, to be honest, that don't suit all kinds of people. The statistics, despite all the money that's spent on DNI, the statistics have not shifted. So I think Fortune 500 companies, I think there's 25 women CEOs. Um, FTSE 100 companies, there's four women CEOs. Um, again, black, uh, black and, and Asian CEOs, again, very much a minority in, in both of those uh, sets of big companies. And yet people are now talking about diversity fatigue. So what we thought, what I think is, is that there's still this set of rules that don't work for most people of talent in an organization, all sorts of people in talent in an organization. But it's not just about gender, it's about all kinds of people who are talented but aren't getting through. The, the, the people out there that, you know, the, and it, it, might be a black, it might be a black woman, it might be a disabled man, it might be a, you know, someone with neurodiversity who could really contribute to the profitability of the company if the, if the leadership of the company included people with very different points of view. And my co-author, Catherine, she interviewed somebody um, from a business called We Are, we Are Stripes, which is about um, a diversity um, supporting business. Um, and uh, the, the man who runs it, Hayden's black man, a British black man, and he talked, he said to her, um, you know what, I'm now being invited into the boardrooms of companies to give advice about how they can improve diversity. When was I invited in for the job interview? Where were they then? When I was applying to join them, where, where was the invitation then? And I think there's so much that still needs to change. So you hit on a word and uh, that word was profitability. And uh, one of the folks who we've been lucky enough to have on stage with us many times, who I have a lot of, lot of respect for, is Paul Pullman. And I think Paul, as CEO of Unilever, proved that doing good is also good for business. And their embrace around sustainability, which you touched on earlier as well, in particular, and showed that the brands they wrapped around sustainability, not only did something good for the planet, but also made more money. So in reading a lot of the preview quotes about belonging, uh, Rashad in particular had a quote about, hey, this is not just about doing the right thing or things that are uh, you know, populist at a given moment in time. This is about business. And I know here in the States, we're getting relatively close, well within our lifetimes, where more than 50% of the United States will be non-white. Talk about your sense of business leaders getting that connection between diversity and inclusion and the bottom line. I think that they have 
heard the facts. I know from the research that we did for the book that 51% of employees in the workplace in the UK and in the US don't think that their leader takes personal responsibility for diversity. Um, so I think there is more to be done. 51, that's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. Incredible. Okay, so let's dive into belonging a little bit more deeply. You said earlier, in a sense, it's an update to the glass wall, but when you sat down with that first clean piece of paper, along with your co-authors, Catherine and Mark, what were you trying to accomplish? What directions did you go in that you thought you would go in? And how along the road did you end up going on and off some different exits than you thought you might? So the book came about partly because Catherine and I, and, and you know, you've been brilliant in supporting us. We've, we've spoken at Ad Week um, Europe too but we've given about 200 talks about the glass wall. And very often um, it's mainly women in the audience. And frequently one of the women towards the end would put up her hand and she wouldn't ask us a question. She'd ask a question of the organizers. And she'd say, can I just say, where are all the men? It's mainly women here. And there would be a, maybe one or two men there and one of them would put up his hand and he'd say, Look, I really wanted to come because this is very important to me, but I think there aren't more men here because we thought it wasn't for us. And then she would say, well, if you're not here, how is anything going to change? And so we wanted to write a book that was firmly and squarely targeting everybody. And it feels to us that the inclusion industry has created a, a kind of movement that actually excludes many of the men who are currently in power. And how can that be right? So we wanted to say to them, you need to act. You need to take personal responsibility for this. It isn't okay to say, it's very important to me and I've got a very good woman on my board who's in charge of talent and she's sorting out the pipeline. Because do you know what? The pipeline was never the problem. It's as the new McKinsey research has shown, it's as women and um, underrepresented groups progress up the ladder that they fall off. So we wanted to write a book that explored this, that did interviews with everybody, that didn't just do interviews with a woman who felt like she wasn't getting anywhere, but did interviews with successful women. We wanted to do interviews with, um, you know, straight, white, middle-aged men who feel that they are, I mean, you know, more than once I was told privately, you know what, Sue, I feel like I'm an endangered species. There's been a bit of a backlash. There's been um, a lot of division. So, you know, you're, you're familiar with the whole intersectionality phrase that, you know, you can't assume what someone's experience is. If they are a Chinese lesbian, that doesn't mean that they have the same experience as a gay uh, black man who lives in Brooklyn. You know, you can't, you can't throw people in together. Everybody has their intersectionality experiences um, and they're very different. And they pile on lack of privilege, you know, 
over and over again. But equally, if the patriarchy had set out to divide and conquer, then it's doing a really good job of it. Because because it's got so complicated, it becomes easy for people to say, it's too complicated for me. Someone else will deal with it. And um, that, that's why things haven't shifted. It's, it's a cultural shift that's necessary. So I want to dive a little deeper into two areas that you touched on. One, which is, I, th- I think, exacerbated by what's going on right now with the coronavirus, is the impact on working mothers. And uh, we actually started something which I'm very proud of our, our staff came up with this, mostly young women who are not yet mothers, ironically. And we came up with something called AW Moms, where we've done created a whole community. And the initial kickoff was we invited mothers who were trying to get back into the workplace to come to Advertising Week as our guests. And we had about 350 moms that came to Advertising Week, the last live event that we did in New York. And we've carried that on with a series of events using you know, this forum. Um, talk about the impacts on working mothers and how much more difficult it is for them uh, in particular at this time. Yeah, I mean, statistics are now about abundant. Um, I have to say, I had this feeling with the video calls that I was doing when lockdown started, which was, it was always the mums that the the moms that were kind of perched in the in the bedroom, whereas the dads tended to have a, a big space. And if kids interrupted, then the kids interrupted both mums and dads, but dads proudly took the kids on their, or, you know, just took the, the kids in their stride and sort of went, look, aren't I adorable because I've got a kid? Whereas the mothers were distraught that their business sort of persona had got interrupted. And I don't know one woman who is living in a domestic situation. So it's not just about kids. It could be about aging parents. It could be about pets. It could simply about be about living with your you know, partner, your boyfriend, um, who has not taken on the persona of a 1950s housewife. And I don't know if it's just that women can't shut their mental door on the mess and the, and the things that need doing. You know, and there was this idea already of the mental load. Um, so, you know, with, without a doubt and with due respect to lots and lots of very hardworking fathers that I know, there does seem to be a certain assumption that arrangements will be made for children during the school holidays. And it's the mum that makes those arrangements as well as doing everything else. And I think that's been happening with homeschooling as well. Um, so it's, it's been very difficult. And I think the statistics are something like for every extra hour of childcare that a, a dad has been doing, it's three hours for, for a, for a mum, as well as her working day this is already showing up as a problem in the workplace. So I worry about, you know, you know, it's, it's difficult to return to work when you've got young kids anyway. And in some ways, there's been some joyful bonuses of working parents spending more time with their children, so having breakfast with them, you know, being able to lunch with them. But it's tough, as you know, for mums who are returning to work, 
Um, and in, indeed, in America, it's you don't get very much time off either, do you? I mean, in the UK now, a year off is standard, which is very different to America. And I worry about women dropping out of the workforce even more than they normally do because of these pressures. And again, what that's going to do in the long term to diversity and, and inclusiveness in the workplace. I'd, I'm worried about that. I think we need to be really careful of what's going on at the moment, because also the old ways of gaining social capital aren't around. So when you and I started out in the 80s, a lunch was a thing, right? I mean, you, you, you went for lunch. That's how you got to know people. Um, people are not going for lunch at the moment. They're not even meeting at the water cooler or the tea point at the moment. Now, in some ways, that levels the playing field because everybody's in the same situation. So it becomes about the work that you do rather than the contacts that you have. But we need a way for people to make those contacts because you do need those contacts as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And another challenging subject. So we talked about what is still in most companies and certainly at the CEO level, a white male dominated business culture. And I remember years ago, we'll leave out the name of the company, but it was one of the big holding companies, the executive floor. And there was one office that was occupied by a black woman who was given a chief diversity title. And it really just looked, sounded, smell, every sense you could think of, of tokenism. I do think that companies are moving beyond that now. Um, and it's being, in simple terms, taken more seriously. How far away are we from a real plan? And I, I loved uh, in the book, chapter four, where you really talk about belonging in action. And how far away, how much closer are we? Two different ways of asking the same thing. Are we getting to real action, um, which starts from recruitment and training and, you know, each rung of the ladder heading northward? I think it depends which sector you're talking about and which company you are in. And we do have... Um, some uh, insight into the marketing and PR community in America because we did ask um, people's professions. And, you know, it's, 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 it's actually, it's, it's not great in terms of behavior. Um, in terms of actually experiencing harassment or bias or um, discrimination at work, 47% of the marketing and PR community in the US say that they have experienced that, which is higher than the, than the overall um, population figure, which is more like around 30%. So I, I worry about that. And I think that, you know, it, it depends where you are. I do think that events of this year, and I think that it's not just the, the lockdown, it's also the Black Lives Matter movement, has made this very urgent on that senior leadership's agendas. And I think everybody is looking at taking action. 
I think that that action needs to be more widespread. And, and, you know, I actually loved the, you know, shout out to my UK CEO, Kate, who introduced mandatory uh, microaggressions training for everybody at Mediacom UK this year. And then allyship training, which is actually about creating microaffirmations. And I, I don't know if you um, saw the, I, I was really interested in the, in the story that um, I heard actually on the BBC about the EPIC training for police. And I don't know if you've come across this, but the, the idea that you need to be instinctive about being an ally and not being a bystander. Um, and so this, this training is about um, uh, enabling police to stage an intervention when they see something that is wrong or unfair or discriminatory. Now, that's obviously a life and death situation. I would like to see all of us do a form of that kind of coaching and training of not being a bystander, because it's easier to say stage an intervention than it is to do it. And I think we've all had the experience in our careers where we've heard or seen something that isn't fair and we haven't known what to do about it, either because we don't want to take agency away from the person who it's kind of, you know, addressing or because it's somebody so senior that you think, well, I could say something, but what's that, what's, what's, you know, is this career suicide? Um, and then the moment pass or often as in my case, is it, is it me yet again, that's going to say something and is everybody going to think that I haven't got a sense of humor about anything, <laughs> um, which I do, uh, but I don't like unfairness. And I, I think that as a, as an industry, you know, we want, diversity right we want fresh ideas we know how much talent you know Matt how much young talent there is out there that's fresh and different and innovative we need to welcome that talent in not just let it find its way which was probably what the situation was like when you and I started out which was you just sort of had to put up with it and make your own way through it but we need to invite it in we need to invite that talent in we need to make sure that it feels that the talent, young talent feels safe, warm, like they belong. And that was one of the statistics that surprised me that came out of the book, actually, was that the under 25s feel such a sense of alienation about many of the rituals and the ways of the workplace. And that's, that's our future. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think you really hit on it earlier when we were talking about truth. You know, deep down... We all know in a given situation what the truth really is. And I think here, you know, jumping to belonging, the opportunity to take action is within all of us. And whether it's a small micro step, if you're at the entry level or the beginning of your career, or, you know, when you're in a position to, you know, make bigger chess moves as you climb up the ladder, I think all of us have that opportunity. And what I love about the book is you really lay out very empirically what's going on and as important, a roadmap for leaders going forward. And uh, all credit to you. I think it's a really, really well done. Um, And I wish you every success with it. Is there a a closing takeaway, if you will, that you'd want to leave our listeners with on belonging? Yeah, um, please don't be a bystander. 
I think you're absolutely right, Matt. I think we all know when we hear or see something that is not right and is uncomfortable. And um, as you say in the book, we, we, we sort of explain and we give exercises to help you um, find a way of staging an intervention. But if all of us did that, then we would be in a very different world and it would be a, a good world for our yeah. industry to be in. Good. Well, this was terrific. I, it was a real pleasure to talk to you like this. We've never, we've never had an opportunity like this. It was brilliant, Matt. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.